Welcome, everyone. This is Russ Galzo of Chronicles of the End Times. So glad you could join me today. Today, I get to share with you a special podcast, a special episode, in which I get to feature the prologue and chapter one and chapter two of Hidden Thrones. And I know that this new series will touch a lot of people, and it reveals what's going on. What is the evil that's going on behind everything we see today, and where is it headed? This is book one of five books in this series, and I know that you will enjoy it and gain something from it. So I wanted to share a little bit with you today. Could it be that the evil we see is inspired by a dark kingdom, a demonic spiritual force at war with the human race? Could these princes and rulers of darkness be influencing our world today? Jack Bennett knows this is the truth. He knows because he encounters it every day. I invite you to follow Jack Bennett in the first of a five-part series as he battles the realm of Hidden Thrones. Hidden Thrones by Russ Galzo. Prologue. The car slowly navigated up the long, twisting stone driveway. One had to be careful not to drive too fast because of the thick, tall trees that towered over this narrow passageway. A strong wind blew the trees from side to side, creating strange and ominous shadows on the ground. It was a clear night, with the exception of the occasional harmless cloud dashing by a brilliant full moon. Finally, the car stopped a few hundred feet from an old, three-story Victorian house. The two young people sat there, just staring at it at first. Then, looking at each other, they broke into sly, mischievous smiles. The moon washed over the old house, giving it an eerie presence that rivaled any Hollywood movie set, but that didn't bother Tom or Louise. After all, that's why they were here. Tom stepped out of the car first. He was six feet three inches, 210 pounds, with jet black hair. From what everyone said, especially the girls, he was drop-dead gorgeous. The passenger side car door opened, and Louise got out holding a large blanket. Looking up into the wind, she brushed her long blonde hair out of her eyes. She was all that Tom was, but in a 17-year-old girl kind of way. Beautiful, a face and body, she had it all and had no trouble showing it off. Every boy in Blackstone High, Virginia, was after her and would gladly trade places with Tom any day, any time. Besides their good looks, they had something else in common. They were totally and outrageously out of control. Tom and Louise did anything they wanted, whenever they wanted. They got caught having sex in one of the backstairs hallways at school in their junior year, giving no excuse or apology for their actions, and even had the audacity to ask the principal what the big deal was. That was just the tip of the iceberg, compared to some of their more famous exploits. Now it was their senior year, and they had every intention of making it memorable. The Oslo house was, by everybody's account, absolutely positively haunted. There was no doubt about it. Year after year, kids would pull up to the house and then drive away too scared to go in. Many said they did, but no one ever had the guts to really do it. There was one case where a kid ran onto the porch, but then took off in a panic when he said he saw a tall, dark figure coming toward him. The Oslo house had been empty for a little over 30 years. 
the Oslos, a couple in their late 40s, were mysteriously murdered in this house 31 years ago this very day. Tom and Louise knew that and had been planning this escapade for some time. Louise walked over to Tom, grabbed him by his belt, pulled him tight against her waist, and reaching up gave him a passionate kiss, saying, Let's do this thing, babe. Tom looked down at her, smiled, and said, All the way, Lou, all the way. The two walked slowly toward the house. It had a big wraparound porch that still had a porch swing, which swayed with the night wind, creating a foreboding squeak that only served to turn them on all the more. As they stepped onto the porch, they smiled at each other one more time and then opened the door. The door was solid wood and heavy, but no challenge for Tom's physique. He pushed the door open and they walked inside. The front room was dark except for the moonlight streaming through the broken glass of the windows. It was difficult to see much of anything except shadows of old furniture and pictures that still hung over the fireplace, just as the Oslos had left it thirty years ago. Louise laid the blanket on the floor and began to take her shirt off. Tom followed. It was clear that they planned on going for it right in the old house, defying every story they had been told. Arrogance was their forte. The two fell to the floor and embraced feverishly and passionately. Suddenly, Tom thought he heard the sound of footsteps coming down the stairs from the second floor and turned his head to see what it was. Looking puzzled, Louise said, "'Come on, babe, what's wrong?' Then she heard it, too. They both jumped to their feet. Tom looked up and saw a tall, dark figure coming down the steps. Louise stepped back and let out a blood-curdling scream. Tom looked for something to use as a weapon, and grabbing the fireplace poker, he stepped in front of Louise as they both began to move slowly backwards toward the door. The figure stopped at the lower landing and spoke. "'Well,' Look who we have here. I know you two very well, it said, in a voice so low and imposing that it shook Tom and Louise to the very core. You don't know us, Louise shouted nervously, her voice beginning to shake. Not knowing where the voice even came from, she held on tighter to Tom. Oh, but I do. Tom Stockshire and Louise Crowder. I've been watching you for some time. You're in my house now. Though scared out of his mind, Tom still had enough arrogance to shout, Oh yeah? Then come and get it, jackass! The figure moved at Tom without touching the ground. In less than a second, it was in Tom's face. Tom swung the iron fire poker at the figure, but it passed right through it. Tom's eyes widened, and sweat became boring from every pore of his body. Louise screamed again and ran to the door, shouting at Tom, What are you doing? Run! At that moment, Tom felt himself lifting off the ground, still flailing away at the dark figure to no avail. Stunned, Louise bolted out the door and began to run for the car. The creature let out a roar like a lion and flung Tom headfirst into the brick wall above the fireplace. His body fell lifelessly to the floor. The creature moved to the door, looked out toward Louise, and let out a sound so awful that it even shook the surrounding trees. Louise got to the car, opened the door, and began frantically locking every door by hand. Searching for the keys, she stopped and realized in a moment of shock and despair 
that Tom had them in his pocket. Reaching for her handbag, she fumbled around until she found her phone and shakily dialed 911. 911, what is your emergency? Louise's voice was shaking as she screamed into her phone, Please help! We are being attacked! Ma'am, I need you to calm down. Where are you? We're at the old Oslo house off of Conway Street. I think it kills my boyfriend. Ma'am, the police are on their way. What attacked you? Was it an animal? I don't know what it was. It wasn't human. Are you in the house now? No, I'm in the car, but I don't have the keys. Louise looked toward the house and screamed into her phone. Oh my God! What is it? Are you still there? Ma'am? It's coming! It's coming! Help me, please! Oh my God! The creature was now standing just outside her car door. It peered through the window, staring at her. Louise was frozen in fear, her eyes locked with the creature's. Its eyes were like deep, dark holes that seemed to have no end. She was completely paralyzed. Louise could barely hear the voice on the phone asking her the same question over and over again. Ma'am, are you there? Are you there? Louise raised her hand to her ear, the phone still frozen in her hand, and spoke in a low, somber voice. It's here. It's here. The person on the other end of the phone tried to stay calm, but even the pitch of her voice was getting higher and higher. What's there? Tell me what's happening. The police are almost to you. Stay with me. Ma'am, are you there? There was no answer. Finally, a click, and then silence. Nothing but dead silence. Chapter 1 Jack Bennett sat at his desk, typing madly, encircled by piles of papers and books. The only thing visible was the monitor screen that sat right in the center of it all. He was working hard on his latest blog podcast series, The Growing Evil on Planet Earth, when his cell phone started ringing and buzzing at the corner of his desk. He looked at it and drew a deep breath. He didn't recognize the number, so he let it ring, not really wanting to answer it. He was always getting calls from local police departments and various branches of the government in D.C. to investigate unusual activity, but not usually at this time of night. Finally, he picked his phone up and swung his chair around, facing what was a literal wall of books on everything from ancient Babylonian religions to the latest reports on present-day paranormal activity. In the middle of it all was a large and very old Bible. In fact, Jack had a whole shelf of Bibles of many translations from all over the world. This particular one was loaded with his scribbled notes and comments he had accumulated over many years of travel and research. He referred to it as his secret weapon. Taking a deep breath, he answered, Hello, this is Bennett. Jack, it's Frank. We need you to come down to the old Oslo house right away. Frank Lederman was an FBI agent with a special division of the federal government out of Washington, D.C. The nation's capital was a mere 45-minute drive from Jack's house, so he and Frank saw a lot of each other. Frank investigated paranormal activity, a new fascination in Washington, and this night he had been called in by the Blackstone Police Department to look into an unusual case. 
Frank, is this a new cell number? I almost didn't pick up. You do know it's 12.30 in the morning, don't you? Jack inquired, sounding exhausted. Whatever it is, can it wait until at least dawn? No, it can't, and besides, I know you aren't sleeping. You're probably sitting at that mountain of cut-down trees you call a desk right now, pounding away on your keyboard. This is a weird one, Jack. And I mean weird. Let me guess, more kids messing around at that old house again? Jack half-asked with a bored look on his face. Not quite. We have a homicide on our hands this time. Two young kids from Blackstone High. One dead and one in complete shock. Jack spun back around in his chair and said, Okay, I'll be there in 20 minutes. He changed his shirt, grabbed a bottle of water, and headed out the door. Jack had just turned 40 years old a couple of weeks before. At an average height of 5 feet 11 inches, he was not overly handsome, but good-looking nonetheless. He kept himself in relatively good shape by walking and playing softball when he had the chance. Although Jack had never married and wasn't really much for socializing, he always kept busy with his work. Over the years, there had been a couple of ladies in his life, but there was no one special at present. It was a fairly short drive to the old house. Jack pulled down the long driveway and parked next to one of the three police cars that were sitting with their lights flashing. It was a sobering scene as he watched the ambulance silently and slowly pull away. Jack had seen a lot of strange things over the years, but he never got used to seeing the death of anyone so young. Frank walked up to him and urged, You have to see this. The two men made their way onto the porch and then into the house. The main room was now lit up with a couple of floodlights, and there was a forensic team already hard at work collecting evidence. Jack looked around and immediately noticed the blood on the brick wall above the fireplace and the large pool of blood on the floor below. He drew a deep breath. Okay, what have you got so far? Frank tilted his head to the side. Not much. The girl is the one who called it in. Apparently, she ran to the car and was able to lock herself in, but couldn't get away because we found the keys in the Vic's pocket. She was in a nearly catatonic state when we got here. From the hair and fragments from the victim's scalp that we found embedded in the brick, it appears that he hit the wall with incredible impact, then collapsed on the floor and bled out. We're not sure at this point, but it looks likely he was already dead when he hit the floor. Was the girl attacked physically? Jack asked with concern. Frank shook his head. No, but she's not able to talk. I mean, she's gone like nobody home. We tried to get her to say something, but she just stared out into space and kept saying, He's coming. He's coming. Jack leaned in and asked, Who's coming? I don't know, Jack. If I knew, I wouldn't have called you. Hmm, Jack thought. Have you searched the rest of the house? Yeah, nothing. Jack turned, took a good look around, and said, This ceiling has to be at least ten feet high. Eleven, to be exact, Frank remarked, raising his arm and revealing the tape measure in his hand. So, the question is, who or what would have the strength to throw someone that hard and that high to cause that kind of damage? That's just it. 
Plus, our Vic was 6'3 and had to weigh at least 200 pounds. There are no bears around here, and besides, there were no other marks on the body. We need to talk to the girl as soon as possible. We need to hear what she saw and find out who she thinks is coming. How about the 911 call? Do you have that? Yeah, I've got it here on my phone. Give me a minute and I'll play it for you. Frank hit play and Jack listened intently. He knew what he was listening for, and then he heard it. We're at the old Oslo house off of Conway Street. I think it killed my boyfriend. Ma'am, the police are on their way. What attacked you? Was it an animal? I don't know what it was. It wasn't human. Jack turned to Frank and said, You're right. This is a strange one. Chapter 2 the next morning, Jack headed up to the hospital. He had to try and talk to Louise. He had encountered something similar to this a year ago in upstate New York, and he was certain the girl was right. Whatever attacked her boyfriend wasn't human. He took the elevator to the third floor, and the doors opened right in front of the nurse's station. Approaching the desk, Jack spoke. My name is Jack Bennett. I'm here to see Louise Crowder. The nurse didn't have to check. Everyone on the floor knew what room Louise was in. The nurse replied, Her parents are with her right now. I'll ask them if you can see her. Jack nodded, but he knew nothing was going to stop him from talking with the girl. He needed to see her face and look into her eyes. They would tell the story that her words could not. The nurse stuck her head in the door of the room, then stepped out into the hallway and motioned him to come down. Jack walked through the door and was met by Louise's father, Stephen Crowder. Mr. Crowder was the vice president of Hall's Technology Group, a high-tech think tank that made most of its money on government contracts. He reached out and shook Jack's hand as he walked in. The nurse quickly introduced Jack. Mr. and Mrs. Crowder, this is Jack Bennett. Hello. No need for introductions. You're Jack Bennett, the consultant I've heard so much about. It's a pleasure to meet you, but I'm afraid Lou isn't going to be able to help you much. She's still pretty shaken up. The doctor says it is going to be a long road back. I understand, Jack said compassionately. I just need a minute with her. Is that okay? Sitting right next to her daughter's bed, Louise's mother glanced at her husband and shook her head no. Stephen walked over to his wife, lovingly put his arm around her, and said, Let's just give him a minute, honey. We'll stand right outside the door. It will be all right. Mrs. Crowder reluctantly agreed, and the two walked out the door and stood in the hallway. Jack slowly walked over to Louise, who was awake but not very responsive. He reached out, touched her hand, and, in a calming tone, said, Hi, Louise. My name is Jack. I need to ask you a few questions, okay? Her eyes widened. She looked straight at him and responded in a low whisper. He's coming. That's what it said. He's coming. Jack leaned a little closer and asked, Who is coming, Louise? Her eyes widened and her voice trembled. The spirit of Babylon. He's coming. She continued staring at him, not blinking, not moving a muscle. Jack knew full well what Louise meant. 
The spirit of Babylon was a biblical reference, meaning a spirit of rebellion. It's the one Jack had been writing about. This spirit had a long, ugly history, starting with the rebellion in heaven, when Lucifer gathered a third of the angels in an attempt to overthrow God, but was defeated and banished from heaven eternities ago. Jack knew those ancient scripts by heart. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 13 reads, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn! You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 14 says, You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Jack had heard all he needed to hear. He knew what he was up against. No more questions were needed. Jack's heart was breaking to see this young girl so distraught. He leaned in, took her hand, and said in a low, gentle voice, Louise, I'm going to pray for you, okay? She didn't say a word, her eyes still steadfastly fixed on him. Jack could now feel her squeezing his hand tighter and tighter and could see and feel the desperation in her eyes. This wasn't what Jack was known for, but nobody really knew how Jack solved all of the difficult and mysterious cases he was assigned to, except his old buddy Frank. Only he knew about Jack's secret weapon. If anyone else found out about it, he would be labeled as a religious freak and lose all of the awesome opportunities the government sent his way. Jack looked up towards heaven and simply said, Father, in the name of Jesus, your son, I release this child from the bondage of evil and fear. Suddenly, Louise sat up. She looked around the room and then back at Jack. With tears welling up in her eyes, she grabbed onto his arm and cried, Thank you! Oh my God, thank you! Jack quickly said, Thank God not me. At that, the hospital room door flew open and in came Mr. Crowder with his wife right behind him. Mrs. Crowder ran to Louise. What happened? Are you all right? I knew we shouldn't have left her alone. Mom, Dad, I'm all right, Louise said, tears streaming down her face. I'm not sure what happened. This man prayed for me and now I feel so much better. It's like a door opened up and I walked out into the sunlight. Upon hearing this, Mrs. Crowder turned around to say something to the mysterious man who had given her daughter back to her, but he was gone. Jack got out of the elevator on the ground floor and headed for the parking lot. He wasn't into hanging around. After all, he figured God did the work, so how could he take any credit? Besides, he didn't want that kind of thing to get around just yet. He had to keep his secret agent status. He was on a mission, and nothing was going to get in his way. Not the seen or the unseen.